I forgot to mention one announcement that I had here. It's the uh, uh, Bell Choir Summer Camp. And I don't know if anybody's interested in doing that, but I have a flyer up here for it. I'm going to just uh, leave it up here on the pulpit, and you can check the times and dates for that. And so it's, uh, uh, it's, it, it announces this, Aspiring Musicians, which automatically left me out. But, uh, but it's, uh, it's going to be on the 722 through 726, and it's from 9 a.m. to 12 noon on those days. So uh, if you're interested, I've got this up here, and you can get the information. Or we can make a copy of it if you want to take with you. Uh, this morning... Uh, we are starting a summer series, uh, and it's Seeking God's Answers to Hard Questions. And you, uh, as a congregation, submitted a number of questions, and uh, so we'll be doing with, uh, dealing with those questions through the summer. Uh, the first one today has to do with homosexuality. Uh, and as we look at this... Uh, my goal, hopefully, is to, that we can uh, come to a, uh, a biblical Christian position on this issue and uh, what, looking at what God's Word says about it. Uh, the starting point, uh, in order to really get going on this, we actually are going to have to go to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, ultimately, uh, the scripture I'll be looking at most detailed will be in 1 Corinthians, but uh, Genesis chapter 1 is where we need to start, and uh, the uh, thing to, and the reason for that is that this is God's original plan, and so uh, I want to start here. And uh, chapter 1, and I'm not going to read all of chapter 1, I'm going to start with verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish and of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the bird, uh, livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In his image, God created him. Male and female, God created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Four things that I wanted to catch out of this uh, verses, especially verses 26 through 28. First off, it's that man is made in the image of God. And this idea of image in the likeness, there's a, a, a thought of similarity to God. Uh, we are not made uh, God. Uh, there is a, certainly in, in the 70s and, and 80s there was a movement where God is in us and we are we are God type of movement. And uh, that no, that's not the way this is. We are in the image of God. God has made us in a in a sense somewhat like Him 
and, and, and the reason for that is that we will have a relationship with Him, looking to Him as a Father and as a Sovereign over us. So we're made in the image of God, likeness of God. Uh, and so man, I, I, I heard this phrase and I, I wrote it down, man, the created, is to respond somehow to God, the Creator. And that's why he's, he's made us in His image, to be able to think. And you, you, you have to put this together. We are able to think about who we are, our existence. We're able to look way down the line in the future in the sense of plans and thoughts and ideas. And we're able to look back to the early parts of our life. And we sit and we can reason and say, oh, I am a human. I am created in the image of God. My dog, as smart as I think she is, does not sit there and say, oh, I'm a dog. You know, uh, uh, it's, you know, we are created with the unique ability to think, to reason. And I think that that's in that sense what God has given us in his likeness. They're able to, to, to comprehend and to put things together. And the desire to have communion, to have relationship with each other. So we're, uh, this idea of, of responding to God, uh, the image is, is, is uh, shared by the human race. And what I mean by that is it has nothing to do with nationality. It has nothing to do with gender. It has nothing to do with age. It has nothing to do with a particular race or a particular color of skin. Man, all humanity, created in the image of God. That image is to be found in man and woman. In other words, somehow together they create a fullness of the picture of the image of God. Male and female. Adam is in God's image. Eve is in God's image too. And so together they create this picture. It says God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. Uh, and one purpose of man and woman that he puts here clearly is to be fruitful and to multiply. Also, as a husband, a wife, they complete or complement each other. And and even further on in Genesis chapter 2, it will say, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. A uniqueness in relationship together, husband and wife. Um The creation, I I wrote it down this way, the creation account of man, male and female, shows heterosexual as the plan, as the norm that God anticipated or expected of man. So, homosexuality is outside of God's design for the human race. It's it's outside of the design. Um, To substitute... A man with a man or a woman with a woman is is a distortion of God's original design. In other words, the idea of a heterosexual relationship. Now, people will say, well, God doesn't say anything about homosexuality there. In fact, He doesn't say uh, uh, there's not a whole bunch of verses about it in, in Scripture. But those few that He does make comment on are very, very specific. 
But I want, before we got there, I, I wanted to, to also comment on, on the fact that Jesus affirms in Matthew chapter 19, he affirms this same picture of a heterosexual male-female relationship in marriage. Uh, chapter 19 of Matthew, uh, verses, well, we'll just go 1 through 6. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he, sent, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and, they healed, and, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up, with him and test, came up to him and tested him, asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, in the Hebrew culture at this point, divorce was a common thing. And, the, the, and the, any cause was one of, the, one of the philosophies of one of the groups of the Hebrew people. And the any cause could go literally, no, uh, people think I'm joking when I say this, literally down to a poorly, she, that she was a poor cook. You could go to the gate, get a certificate of divorce, and put her out. And the problem with that was is that a woman who was divorced didn't have much opportunity to survive in any other way other than to, to possibly and frequently have to go into prostitution. So it was a, a terrible thing and a part of it. And so they're saying, is it, is it right that this can happen? Because there were others who said, no, you can't do that. And so they were trying to trap Jesus to force him to make a statement to identify him with one side or the other and get another group of people angry with him. And so he answered, Have you not read that he who created them, taking us right back to Genesis 1 and 2, created them from the beginning, made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Again, Jesus affirming that God had a unique relationship for husband and wife. When they come together, they form a unit that is uniquely one together. And, and this is uh, extremely important to, you know, in the sense of how we look at marriage and a lot of other aspects of this. So Jesus affirms in Matthew what Genesis says in the reference to creation. And so, again, I put in here, homosexuality does not fit into God's original plan. So where does it fit in? And the answer is it doesn't. But where did it come from? Okay. Well, Romans chapter 8, or I mean chapter 1, uh, gives us a, a good indication of how we look at this. So if you'd go to Romans chapter 1. Start with the 18th verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without, and through the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they, be, being futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images re, uh, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So here's the initial picture. They rejected God. Even though they could go to creation and see that there must be a hand in there, that, that, that there's a creator, that, and, and through their own traditions, going clear back to Adam and Eve, if you will, teachings through the Scripture, they can come to this conclusion. There is a God. But they, they, it says they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. In other words, they became idolaters. Pagan worship. So verse 24 says, Therefore God gave them up in the, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the, creator rather than the, uh, the, the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Very clearly, God identifies homosexual relationship here through Paul's writing as debased, wrong, falling short of God's mark. However you want to put it, it's sin. And the consequences of this, as we read through this, was in verse 24, 26, and 28. God gave them over. In other words, as they come up with, with stuff that would draw them away from God... God's basically said, if this is where, the way you want to go, I give you over to it. And as they gave them over to it, it gets progressively worse and multiplied as far as the way they look at each other, the way they treat each other uh, within the framework of culture. And it becomes basically every man for himself, every person for themselves. And... Quite candidly, it's not unlike what we see in our culture today. When I was in, uh, when Kathy and I were in San Jose in the late 70s, the the homosexual movement was peaking there, and they were coming up with all sorts of ordinances and rules and regulations about renting and everything else in order, or in order for the homosexual to have their rights. And the irony was, in, in a sense, was that to give them their rights meant taking rights away from somebody else. In other words, I have no choice. I have to rent to you. I have no choice. If it violates my faith or my, my, my individual belief system, this type of thing. So, it's, 
not part of God's plan, and it's very clearly uh, the result of the fall. Of the fall. Now, if you went back to Le- Leviticus 18:22 and chapter uh, 20, verse 19, uh, you'll find that you know it basically says that the, the that it's an abomination to God. And it's hard to get worse than that in the sense of abomination. It's a it's an affront to God in such a way that he he has to sh- to shun you. He has to stand away from you. Genesis chapter 19 and, and Jude 7 uh, in the New Testament mentions something about it, and that's Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not going to get into that whole thing, but, but there's a, a, again an example of when man gets so corrupt in the way he thinks that whatever I want to do is okay. And, and collectively, if I can get the community to approve, and you notice that sense, that, that last phrase here, Though they knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Well, when we give approval, it gives us a free, freer conscience in a sense. If, everybody, if, if everybody's in agreement that this is okay, then I feel okay about myself and the way I want to be. So, you know, those are uh, just some of the, the pictures. And again, God gives us, if we want to pursue sin, God will give us over to it. So there has to be something in us that comes along through us where God opens our eyes to change the way we think in order to go a different direction. It's not something we do on our own. We need the help of God. We need the power of the Holy Spirit opening our eyes. In First Timothy Uh, Paul again writing, and this also in chapter 1, Paul writes to Timothy verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, we know, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and their mothers, for murderers. You know, in other words, the law is sitting there to protect us against such people. Okay, uh, The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, that means people who capture people and then sell them to other people, uh, liars, per, uh, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to, to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. In other words, Paul is saying again, here's this, there's a whole list of ungodly things, and amongst it we see the word homosexuality again. The reason why I keep coming, I'm using these verses is so that we see it's consistently put in categories with other things that, that God calls sin. And so to pull it out of that somehow and to say that that's not what God is talking about here, that he's talking about those men who want to force themselves on other people and therefore he's referring to a form of rape or molestation, that's not what the Scripture says. The, the word for homosexual here is basically a man who lies down with another man in his bed. First Corinthians chapter nine, 
again, puts all these things in the same category. First Corinthians, well, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor uh, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. I'll get back to that verse in a minute, but just that picture. None of these people that he's put into this category, if this is the way they're choosing to live their life, unrepent and practicing these sins as a part of their lifestyle, what is it they're not going to inherit? The kingdom of God. What does that mean they are going to inherit? They're going to inherit hell. It's, it's one or the other. Okay? So, I, I was looking up these words and uh, there was so much of it that I, I, I just cut a page out of my notes. And <laughs> but, as you go down through this, it's the unrighteous do not inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous here is in violation of God's standards. That's an unrighteous person. Simply a person who's in violation of God's standards. Uh, those who, uh, it says, do not be deceived, which means to, uh, to go astray, to deviate from the correct path, or wander off course to be misled. But I thought it was interesting that this word is broader than what we normally use the word deceived for. To wander off course. I kept thinking of the Pilgrim's Progress story. Uh, to deviate from the correct path. Uh, to go astray. The idea is that there's a choice involved in this word here. Don't be deceived. Don't, don't listen to these people that have chosen to say this is okay. Don't be led astray. Uh, neither the sexual immoral... Uh, and and this, this idea of a sexually immoral is the idea of one who is an idolater and a male prostitute. I thought that was interesting as you look up the things. Anyone engaging in sexual immorality is this idea of immorality. But the word a male prostitute is implied in this. Um, the idea of, of, of practicing homosexuality, again, it's a man in bed with another man uh, and the, the technical term is a sodomite. Okay, taking us back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, this word for thieves, by the way, in verse uh, uh, 10 is, is an interesting word. A sneaky thief. <laughs> uh, steals by stealth versus the robber who comes and violently takes something from you. So this is, you know, a deceptive, sneaky type of, of thing, you know, uh, thieves. Greedy, which means just covetousness, wanting more. Uh, drunkards, literal. I, I just put that literal. Uh, revilers, one who injures another's reputation with degrading, abusive insults. That's what a reviler is. Uh, using mean-spirited, insulting words with the intent to humiliate or to demoralize. Swindlers, extortionists, is a literal translation for that. 
None of these people will inherit. They will not obtain. They will uh, not receive the kingdom of God. And then he goes on and, and says that, that such were some of you. But let me, let me read a, a brief couple paragraphs I copied out of a, uh, an article. Let's pull together the various strands of biblical teaching on this subject. First of all, Genesis 1 and 2 affirms that heterosexuality is God's design for the human race and that the image of God is uniquely reflected in the male-female union. Genesis 19 illustrates God's judgment on an attempted homosexual rape. Leviticus 18 and 20 offer clear prohibitions against homosexual behavior with death, the penalty for violating the law. In short, the Old Testament condemns homosexuality by, uh, both by principle and precept. When we come to the Gospels, we find that Jesus upheld the view that heterosexuality is God's plan for mankind. Paul twice classes homosexuals with murderers, adulterers, and other immoral people. He also clearly states that unrepentant practicing homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Romans 1 shows the widespread, blatant homosexuality is a key sign of a depraved society which has deliberately turned away from God. Basically saying, I will not have anything to do with your God. The evidence, or the God of the Scripture. The evidence is overwhelming. Homosexual behavior in any form is wrong. It is degrading and, and uh, it's degraded and degrading sin. It is a horrible lifestyle. There is nothing gay about it. Protestations about true love and meaningful relationships do not change God's verdict. Furthermore, no one has ever created, was ever created by God to be homosexual. Now, somebody says, what if you're born with a homosexual tendency? Even if that were a possibility, what if I'm born with a violent temper, towards a violent temper? Am I supposed to be accountable for it before the throne of God? So even if that were a possibility, it doesn't, it doesn't excuse, okay? Uh, what I am saying is that when it comes to homosexuality, the lifestyle is sinful, the behavior is sinful, and so is the lust that goes with it. For those who take the Bible seriously, there can be no other answer. Now, I put in my own footnote in here. Homosexuality is not the cause of society's decline. It is a symptom of it. That makes sense to you. It's not it's not what causes society. It's a symptom of society's decline. An interesting thing has happened in the history of the United States, especially in the late 1700s and early 1800s. By the way, homosexuality and bestiality were a common practice in the Ohio Valley, and and criminals ran wild. In fact, one place was called Rogue's Den. Uh, you know, uh, it was that was the name of a city, and uh, God brought about a great awakening. First, a revival in the church in the 1790s and early 1800s, and then a great awakening to the point where stump preaching began. And in the early 1800s, literally in the in the Ohio Valley, which you got to figure, there's not a lot of people. Uh, one of the biggest cities, I think, was Lexington with 1,500 people, okay? In the valley, in, the, in, in the, 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 this one area, uh, the big meadows and fields, and, and 
they literally cut down a tree and stood on a stump to preach. And so that's where that idea of, of, of stump preaching gets, uh, gets going. And at one point, there were as many as 25,000 people hearing preachers all around this area in the valley preaching 24-7. And there was a great awakening and a great revival in the church and a great awakening in the culture. So I, I, in the midst of all of this that I'm talking about, I want you to see God has moved many times through history and brought about great renewal and great revival as the church looks at things and calls sin, sin, and first identifies it to themselves, the church, and then repents if we have been ignoring it, repents if we have been uh, less than uh, accountable before the throne of God as to how we deal with or talk about or relate to these things. It's Again, homosexuality is not the cause of society's decline, but it is a symptom of it resulting of man's ignoring God's and God's Word and taking charge himself. Now, the next question would be, well, is there any hope for the homosexual? I already made the comment about the great revivals and stuff. Listen again to what 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 is uh, saying. Uh, verse 11, talking about all of these, these negative things, immoral idolaters, adulterers, uh, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, tra- revilers, swindlers, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then what Paul writes here. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. A life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. And uh, again, the words washed here, uh, is to uh, is is the idea. It's a word that means everything is completely or entirely washed. In other words, it's a full cleansing, not partial. Okay, somebody says, "Well, wait a minute. If I'm fully cleansed, then how come sin still has a battle with me?" Well, we can go into Romans seven if we want, but the idea is is that I'm still in a fallen flesh, and I still live in a fallen world, and there's competition. But but the reality is, is that when God looks at me through Jesus Christ, my Savior, whom I've confessed with my mouth and believe in my heart that He is the Son of God, uh, at that point in time, God sees me through Christ. We just sang songs about that. He sees me through Christ. And as a result, He sees the work completed. By the way, Philippians tells us very directly, He's going to finish the work He has started in us. So we're, we're washed. We're complete, complete removal of the stain. Or also it has to do with the word complete removal of a debt. I, didn't, I, didn't, I would not have associated that word with the word washed the way it is here, but it's, it's also the complete removal of a debt. The debt has been paid in full in reference to judgment before the throne of God if you have confessed Jesus Christ as your Savior. Then he says, you, know, you weren't only washed, you used the word, you were sanctified. To be sanctified means to be consecrated, to be made holy, 
to be set apart, to be dedicated to. Through Jesus Christ, we are set apart. We are no longer part of the world. We're in it, but we're not of it. And then you were justified, which means you were made righteous. Literally made innocent. Isn't that an amazing thought? Because I know who I have been. I know what I have done. I know the things I have said. I know the things I have thought. And I know that I am guilty of sin. But through Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross and my receiving Him as the Son of God, I am viewed as a completed work. Again, Paul says, it will be done. It will be completed. I am viewed as a completed work and I am innocent. How amazing is that? Where did that amen come from? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it, the reality is we've, we are innocent. We are no longer guilty. before. And I, I go to Romans chapter 8 so often, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because we are washed, we are sanctified, we are justified. Cleansed of all charges. There's another definition that was put with this. Cleansed of all charges. Delivered of all charges. All charges paid in full. And then it says, as it does here, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Not by us. And not by you for me or me for you. But by Jesus Christ our Lord. And by the Spirit of our God. The Holy Spirit in us. I'm going to cut it there because uh, I think that's the best place to stop this morning. Life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ, which takes us automatically, for me, to the back of our bulletin and the Roman road. And I would just like to go through that together this morning. This is the reality that when you come to the point where you know who you are before God, you're, you're being honest with yourself. You're not going around looking for people who support you in your sin, but you're actually allowing your sin to be confronted by the Holy Spirit and you confess. And as a result, you come to this and you come to this conclusion. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one that's innocent. No man no woman is innocent. We have all sinned. The wages of sin is death. There's what we deserve. There is the penalty. There is the price. There is the wages. This is what we've earned. If, you know, it's one of those questions where I'm cautious, and you've heard me say it many times. Do you really want what you deserve? I've heard people say, I deserve. You know, and they talk about some particular situation within the rights and the frameworks of their, their civil rights or their government rights or what the law may say. But do you really want what you deserve? Because what you deserve is death. 
verse 8 of, of chapter 5 of Romans. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners. In other words, we didn't come clean. We were still in our filthy rags full of sin. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He went to the cross. It was laid on Him to the point where He could say the words, It is finished and it was done. Resulting in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For while the heart one, uh, with the heart one believes and is justified, made innocent, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, delivered from his sin. I want to go back to 6.23. Somebody said you didn't read it all. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Free. There isn't a thing you can bring to the throne of God in the sense of payment of works that says, here, now I'll exchange this. We have one song that says, if all the world were my possession, basically, it would not be enough. What did we rest in? The finished work of Jesus Christ. Every time we come to communion, we rest in the finished work of Christ. That's why we have communion every week. I really believe in the book of Acts, it says as often as they gathered together, which might have meant more than just Sunday, uh, they shared communion. In fact, there's at least one time where communion was served on a very early Monday morning. And if you know about the one where the young man falls out of the window and, and all that kind of stuff, it was late and, and it, the idea was it was past midnight. Uh, so, you know, communion is what we share that talks about. Jesus Christ emptied Himself, came in the flesh, died, literally, poured out His blood. Life is in the blood. Poured out His life. Poured out His blood. Died for us. It is finished. And Father, into my hands I commend my spirit. And I think people say, well, where did he go? Well, I know this day you will be with me in paradise, he said to the, the thief on the next to him. But that wasn't the end of it. Three days later, he raises from the tomb physically. His body physically rises from the tomb. And so we celebrate all of that in communion. And we are to do it until what? He comes again. I ask the ushers to come forward, pass the communion out, hold it until we've all been served, and we'll share together.